Hello, and welcome to this new episode of Head and Heart, a podcast by Probe Ministries. I'll be your host today, Paul Rutherford. We'll be talking about theistic evolution, which is the third part in a series on theistic evolution. And we're going to be asking the question, is theistic evolution a viable theory philosophically? And I have in studio my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ray Boland. Dr. Ray, welcome. Glad to be back. Glad you're here. You've been on the podcast many times. You've done each of the episodes in this series, Mm -hmm. and you are a resident scientist uh, (laughs) expert around here at Probe, Mm -hmm. and Probe is a Christian worldview and apologetics organization. Our website is probe.org. Lots of free resources there, listener. If you've never visited that, we encourage you to visit our website, including lots of resources about theistic evolution, Mm -hmm. which today we're going to record a podcast on, but there's more uh, in writing if you want to read blogs, posts about that as well. Mm -hmm. And Dr. Bowen, for the listener who hasn't met you yet, can you give us a brief introduction for yourself? Well, all my uh, education, both undergrad and graduate school, is in biology. So I have a bachelor's degree from the University of Illinois in zoology, and then I have a master's degree in what I call evolutionary biology from the University of North Texas. And I pursued that program specifically because if I'm going to be a critic of evolution, as I saw myself to be for the rest of my life, I better make sure I know how they say it's supposed to work. (laughs) Sounds very fair of you. And I uh, emerged a larger critic of evolution than when I went into that Mm, (laughs) program. That's telling. And then I have also a master's and PhD from University of Texas in Dallas in molecular and cell biology. Okay, very good. Thank you. And I've been here at Probe Ministries for 48 years. Man, God bless you. Thanks for your faithfulness. (laughs) So asking the question about theistic evolution, is uh, is it a viable theory, philosophically mm-hmm. speaking, and that's what we're going to focus the conversation on today. But before we get into that, what is theistic evolution? Can you give us a brief functional definition of that term before we start talking about it? Well, I've always described it as a, a position that states that God used evolution as his means to create. So they're assuming that evolution is true and that God simply maybe just put it in motion, depending upon the theistic evolutionists you're talking to, They would say God had absolutely no role. Some might say, well, he inserted mutations, but we cannot detect when or how that was done. Um, So it's it's very naturalistic. Okay, so a naturalistic explanation that still acknowledges that there is a God, God created, but he used evolutionary means to accomplish creation, life, creation of life. Mm -hmm. Okay. Um, Okay, very good. And we're also going to be talking about a book. Is yeah. that right? Theistic evolution, a scientific, philosophical, and theological critique. Correct. Did I get that right? Yes, yes, you did. Yeah! Points for me. That was edited by <laughs> Steve Meyer, J.P. Moreland, and Wayne Grudem. And, and um, one or two others, yeah. And some others as well. So if you're checking out that book, listener, please do. I think it's a good book. It's it's worth checking out. It's probably expensive. It's real big. It's real big. A thousand Just, pages of text and another couple hundred pages of notes and references. Well, so there you go. <laughs> if you're feeling a challenge, that's for you. But that is the book that we're going to be talking about significantly as well in this conversation, Dr. And, and also each chapter, there's four sections. Each one has six to ten maybe chapters in it, and they're all, they all stand alone. There's no real connection to them. So you can pick and choose as you want. So in that way, it's kind of like a reference. Yes. It's a reference book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, that's why I'm glad to be talking to you about it, Dr. Bolin, so you can help us digest it and understand it and get, and get, get the meat out of it, so to speak. So... Um, I'll be honest, I'm looking forward to this conversation <laughs> because my educational background is in philosophy. And so I get to finally use philosophy words with you. 
and it'll be fun. I'll give you the opening salvo. What um, what what do you think? I, I know that you're critical of theistic evolution mm-hmm. in general, and so far we've only talked about scientific reasons. But philosophically, I'll give you carte blanche. Is it viable philosophically? Well, the answer, obviously, from the book is no. And one of the earlier chapters in the philosophical section was by J.P. Moreland. And he brings up a number of different critiques philosophically. And one of the things he does uh, spend a lot of time with is just the idea that philosophy comes first. And then science comes from that. Agreed. That's a philosopher. So every scientist has a philosophical perspective when they start. And that you can't use the naturalistic mechanisms of evolution to assume, therefore, that the philosophy should also be naturalistic. Sounds like presuming your conclusion yeah. before you've yeah. justified it. You just and he spent some time with go that. Go straight to it. Okay. But the major aspect that gets talked about, and I know you have a question about concerning that, um, uh, most of the chapters deal with this thing called methodological naturalism. And uh, it's conceived to be a necessary part of science. And that in order to be classified as science, you have to adopt this concept of methodological naturalism. So what is methodological naturalism? Well, obviously it's a mouthful. (laughs) Uh, If you take the term... the word is a mouthful. (laughs) You take the word methodological, it's talking about a method. Method, process. Some method of science. The second world word naturalism indicates that this method only involves natural explanations. There's no spirits, spirit, supernatural, nothing like that is nothing allowed. to the exclusion of supernatural. So I've methodological naturalism has to be applied to whatever answers you come up with in science, because anything else is not naturalistic. And... It's something that's developed over the last 150 years or so. Science wasn't always done that way. Uh, Most of the early scientists were all believers. For sure. And uh, we wouldn't have science without that. They thought they were thinking God's thoughts after him. Um, But here, it's kind of difficult in a sense to really, as I put it in in one of the, the, the programs here, Uh, So methodological naturalism is a method of science that only considers natural explanations. And so, as Meyer and Nelson put it, methodological naturalism asserts that to qualify as science, a theory must explain by strictly physical or material causes. And most theistic evolutionists assert that this is how science must be done. But Meyer and Nelson, in in their chapter, also quote, an atheist, Sean Carroll, who I believe is a paleontologist. I might be wrong about that, but he makes a very interesting statement. He says that science should be about determining truth, whatever truth that may be, natural, supernatural, or otherwise. Oh, good for him. So here's an atheist that's not applying methodological naturalism. Mm -mm. He doesn't think that should be a part of determining truth. Um, in addition, they, they quote theistic evolutionist Daryl Falk, who's a biologist, and Dr. Falk admits that natural selection and mutation do not explain the origin of animal form. Yet he also affirms there is a natural explanation waiting out there. Why? 
Well, he has a commitment to methodological naturalism. And so Dr. Falk will not consider any theory such as intelligent design that invokes creative intelligence. Instead, he waits for an adequate and fully naturalistic theory of evolution. You've illustrated your point, <laughs> yeah. which yeah. I appreciate you doing. If the scientist is committed to only considering natural explanations as scientific theory, because that's how he defines science, that's, that is the definition of methodological naturalism. You are committed to a method yeah. of science which is devoted only to naturalistic explanations. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, part of my... I'm obviously being, being very critical over these podcasts and the radio programs about theistic evolution, but um, I also put something in the, the program on this week um, saying this is my third week of programs critiquing theistic evolution. I simply ask that our brothers and sisters who accept theistic evolution look again with an unbiased eye. Look again. Look again. Ch check it out one more time. Give it another and shot. If you're a practicing scientist, you need to read this book. And you need to interact with the, the problems that are pointed out and uh, be able to reconcile this, this belief in theistic evolution with the actual evidence. So we're talking about theistic evolution today on this Head and Heart podcast, and we're asking the question, is, is this theory philosophically viable? And I'm in studio with my esteemed colleague, Dr. Ray Bolin, and I gave you the first big question, do you think mm -hmm. it's philosophically viable? And... The first thing I heard you say was effectively no, and the the philosophical reason that you gave for it, which I appreciate, but it's not complicated. No. It's presupposing your conclusion mm -hmm. before yeah. you have justified it. Yeah. Which in philosophy is like 101 level. <laughs> like, that's just real simple. You, can, yeah. you can't assume something's right and then say it's right and then explain why it's right by saying it's right. That's what we call an assertion. Yeah. <laughs> just, a, just a simple assertion, which you're allowed to assert things. That just doesn't compel me at all to agree with your assertion because you have not appealed to my reason. You have not appealed to my intellect. You have not appealed to evidence. You have merely asserted your claim. Yep. Not very compelling. No. I'll, I'll put it that way. <laughs> I will put it that way. And so that's why I appreciate you pointing that out. That that's am I hearing you right, Doctor yeah. Bolin? That's, right. That seems to that's be fair. I'm being a little harsh because <laughs> maybe that's the philosopher in me coming out like, nope, nope, <laughs> just nope. <laughs> what else? Are, are there other? Well, when you dig further you into methodological naturalism, there are other problems that come up. Around 1980, the state of Arkansas passed a law that said creationism should be taught alongside evolution in the public schools. Cool. And, of course, that law was challenged. The ACLU sure took, on, took on the case. And the judge was federal judge William Overton, and he struck down that Arkansas law uh, by appealing to what are called demarcation arguments. But what demarcates science from non-science? Yeah, there we go. Yeah. And, and uh, so demarcation things and— he simply reasoned that creations were not science based on these criteria. What were some of them? Well, first he said creationism was not guided by natural law. Second, it was not explained by reference to natural law. And third, creationism was not testable against the empirical world. And fourth, creationism was not falsifiable. So on the surface, Judge Overton's decision seemed reasonable at the time. But Within a few months of that decision being written and handed down, um, it was blistered by philosophers of science. Good. 
<laughs> and the philosopher in me is just dying inside. No! They, they simply explained that many theories throughout science in the past and present would not qualify as science according to Overton's decision. Um, Newton and Galileo posed no natural law to govern gravitational phenomenon. Now, Newton's universal law of gravitation described and predicted gravity precisely, but according to the criteria, it's not science. Even Darwin's theory of evolution uh, knew nothing of the genetics it would eventually refer to and depend on. So again, no appeal to any kind of natural law, no appeal to any kind of uh, test for it. And so they basically said that uh, were both Newton and Darwin unscientific? Well, most people would not claim that today. No, that's a pretty heavy charge. And so if you're going to rely on these demarcation arguments and methodological natural ends up being one as well, um, then you have to kick out a lot of other scientific ideas. That's a really good point. So the the summary, if I'm understanding you, Dr. Boland, is that if you use these demarcation criteria in particular to define what science is and what science isn't, and then you apply that criteria to how we generally understand science to be, it starts to rule out all sorts of things. Mm-hmm. That we, we arrive at some conclusions that seem absurd, Yeah. which according to the scientific method, which I learned in fourth grade, <laughs> God bless you, Mrs. Riley. If, oh, you if, remember. <laughs> I, I do. God bless her. Okay. No way she's listening to this. If you are, much love to you. But if the conclusions seem to contradict the the hypothesis, then you need mm-hmm. to question the hypothesis. Right. You need to go back and check the model. That's the scientific method. That's right. how it's supposed to work. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like that's not being applied in this case. No, it, it's really not. It's inconsistent. And one of the – I love the title of one of the other chapters in, in this section – it says, uh, why methodological naturalism sinks theistic evolution. Hmm. Sinks it, huh? Sinks well, this it. is good because this was another question I already written down I wanted to ask you about. Is is this a problem for theistic evolution, these criticisms you have of methodolo- methodological naturalism? Well, what so it, you go ahead. Yeah, proceed. what it comes down to here this. is that um, this is by author Stephen Dilley, and Darwin's Origin of Species was, was written as a scientific answer to its main competitor at the time, special creation. However, he says in the fourth edition, Darwin also claimed that special creation is not science. So in the initial uh, three uh, editions, he was using scientific arguments that demonstrate evolution is superior to special creation. But if you use scientific evidence to discredit a theory as false, it must be a scientific theory. Otherwise, the scientific evidence is useless. Uh, But when Darwin also claimed that special creation was not science, then his scientific arguments against special creation should have been taken out of his one long argument, but he kept them together. See, he was contradicting himself in his own Mm -hmm. text. It's like he wants the cake and eat it too. Modern-day theistic evolutionists do much the same thing. On the one hand, they use methodological naturalism to demonstrate that intelligent design, for instance, is not science. But then they offer scientific evidence that intelligent design is false using scientific arguments. If ID is not is not science, then scientific evidence is useless. If it is science, then use scientific evidence to demonstrate that it is incorrect science. One other section of, of this chapter I really like. He refers to theistic evolutionist Francis Collins. Uh, great researcher, um, was head of NIH for quite a few years mm-hmm. under the Obama administration. And uh, has had a real impact 
on, on science. He's probably the most recognizable proponent of theistic evolution. And he wrote a book called The Language of God. And he does something here very strange. He uses theological language to show evolution as being true and intelligent design is false. Basically, he reasons that the design of the mammalian eye is less than ideal, and that's been dealt with many, many times. It's not, it's not accurate. Um, hmm. And basically, it is ideal. Uh, basically, reading that design of the mammalian eye is less than ideal. That this is what you would expect, he says, from evolution, not design. Evolution, he says, will cobble something together that works, whereas you'd expect the designer to design it perfectly. So how, how is it he's using theological arguments to demonstrate that evolution is true and um, intelligent design is not, and yet he's basically using theological arguments to demonstrate the truth of evolution? So that, he's being inconsistent. Extremely inconsistent. He's, he's the face of a theory that reconciles naturalism with theism, mm -hmm. evolutionary theory with special creation. But in the process of justifying how he got there, he's borrowing theological mm -hmm. arguments. Yeah. Using theological language to describe how he got there. Mm -hmm. So it's inconsistent. I understand that there have been conversations with Francis Collins and um, even Timothy Keller is a supporter of mm -hmm. theistic evolution. Mm -hmm. um, and they just don't want to budge. <laughs> Several ID people have had conversations with them and... Mm. They're stuck. They're not. They're not moving. So unfortunately, um, theistic evolution likely is going to stick around for quite some time. So I'll go on to point out here an observation that I'm I'm making as I'm listening to you talk about this, which is it sounds like a lot of the philosophical criticism around theistic evolution centers on defining science. Mm -hmm. What is yeah. science? What is how do we? How do we define science? And philosophers and, should do that. Well, I was about to say, that's, there's a whole discipline. That's the yeah. philosophy of science. Yes. We have guys who are doing just mm -hmm. that. And it sounds like the scientific community, by and large, not in whole, because I know it's individuals, but the community, by and large, has bought into a naturalistic worldview, mm -hmm. which is to say that they would agree with the demarcation criteria. Mm -hmm. that this is how we know what science is and what it isn't. If it appeals to natural law, if it can be observable, if mm -hmm. it's known empirically, if it's falsifiable, yeah. if it can be repeatable. And some of those things I agree with in principle mm -hmm. that I think those are good. And they do typically indicate or characterize scientific discipline, scientific study. But if you asked me how I would define it, I, I wouldn't I wouldn't do that because mm -hmm. I wouldn't I wouldn't restrict my terms that severely. I think that's an overly narrow understanding of what science is. Mm -hmm. I mean, I'm I'm just speaking yeah. myself out of my own opinion here, mm -hmm. but I think they've overly defined their terms too too selectively. Yeah. And as and and again, not to beat dead horses, but that really is what we're talking about. That is methodological naturalism. Mm -hmm. When you are so committed to naturalism, you're committed to performing the scientific process uh, in a method which is strictly, unabashedly, only universally and exclusively naturalistic. So if you presume naturalism from the front, yeah. you apply it through the process and you're required at the end, uh -huh. of course you're going to get a natural result. Yep. And of course you're going to reject scientists. You can't see my scare quotes if you're <laughs> not in studio with me who arrive at different conclusions, which are not anything other than naturalism. They're going to say, that's not science. Well, that's because you presuppose naturalism to begin with. So mm -hmm. of course you disagree, but it's only because you've presupposed that that process to begin with. Mm -hmm. So I'm with you. That's a huge philosophical problem. 
I agree. That's a huge <laughs> philosophical problem if they're going to commit themselves to that. So another question for you, Dr. Bowen, what's it, um, what's the benefit here to our listener? Let's, let's say they were sympathetic to theistic evolution, but they've heard maybe all three of these podcasts mm-hmm. now. And they said, okay, there may be some scientific problems. Okay. Now I hear you. There's some philosophical problems, but let's say maybe like Tim Keller, God mm-hmm. rest him. So sorry. He has passed. Um, I love him theologically for what he has done. I know you disagree with his position on theistic evolution, which is fine. Um, but someone like them who was just, Hey, I'm not, I'm not budging. What, what, what advice could you offer to this listener who's in that position, sympathetic to all your criticisms, but just says, nah, I don't want to, but like what, what would be the benefit to them if they shed this view and adopted something more critical? Well, first you'd be rejecting evolution as it should for scientific reasons. That's what the first two podcasts were about. Um, scientifically evolution does not accomplish what it needs to accomplish. And you're holding on to a, a dying theory, in other words. And with the theistic part of it, as I mentioned in the previous one, you have problems with a real Adam and Eve. You have problems with the origin of sin. You have problems with Paul's statement that through one man came sin and through one man came salvation through Jesus Christ, and you end up with a lot of theological problems as well. So um, it's a very chaotic and confused idea, in my opinion. Mm. And if you're going to continue to settle for theistic evolution, well, you're not being consistent within the context of your faith. You're not being consistent within whatever, whether you're practicing scientist or not. You're not seeing the science carefully either, accurately. Um so, I mean, you're going to, in my opinion, it's going to uh, retard your spiritual growth. <laughs> because you're not really seeing God as creator. I mean, there literally is one theistic evolutionist who actually says that um, God didn't even know how evolution was going to turn out. <laughs> he just set it up, let it go. He didn't know how it was going to turn out. That's a very different God than the one of the Bible. <laughs> And so, so it sounds like the benefit to our listener, if they were to adopt a more critical view of theistic evolution or just drop it in, in, in totem is going to be that they are going to have a, a belief about how all life came. Mm-hmm. That's more scientifically accurate because they're not adopting mm-hmm. a scientifically problematic theory. Mm-hmm. And they're also not adopting a theory that is uh, theologically and philosophically problematic mm-hmm. because it raises significant questions. Mm-hmm. Like you just mentioned, like Adam and Eve yeah. and, Paul's view of the Bible, or even Jesus' view of the Bible. When you mm-hmm. read the Gospels, Jesus seems to also take a literal view of what's written by Moses yeah. in the creation account. So I hear you saying that if they were to adopt a critical view or just shed that view, then they're going to alleviate themselves of some scientific problems and some philosophical theological problems. Yeah, there's a lot of reinterpretation that has to take place from the Scriptures. Well, yeah. it didn't really mean that. Here's what actually happened. That's, but... that's good. That's good. That's for whatever this is worth, Dr. Bowen, because I know you're the expert, that that is my assessment on theistic evolution, mm-hmm. is that it is merely a capitulation by mm-hmm. believers to yep. just overwhelmingly say, you know what, so many scientists believe in evolution, let's just figure this thing out. Mm-hmm. And they so they compromise uh, on their faith, and, and in the process, they're buying into, as you've already said, science, which has problems, mm-hmm. scientific results, which have problems with their own theories and arguments and evidence. There's so many problems with it. So you're you're capitulating, but you're doing it for no benefit, right? because you've not only uh, adopted something that has scientific problems, but you've capitulated on your own faith, which yeah. is the one thing you're trying mm-hmm. to hold on to. 
And so there's really a no-win situation here. I mean, you, you implied in your question was uh, why they don't, why someone wouldn't recant and, and reverse their position. Mm-hmm. As I've said before, most scientists who are theistic evolutionists, in their scientific education somewhere, whether as an undergrad or a graduate student, they realize there was a conflict with their faith. Um, that science was completely accepting evolution, but they may have had some reservations because of their their faith. And they really wrestled with it. And it was a, a painful process to finally arrive at a theistic evolution perspective. What they ended up being able to do, they could talk evolution and science in their scientific departments, but then the, when they're at a church, they can still enter into theological conversations. Um, and it's, so, yeah, it is a compromise. But the reason they won't rethink it is because that was a very painful process, and they don't want to revisit it. I appreciate the human perspective you put yeah. on that. That's, that resonates to me as very genuine. Yeah. That's probably the case for those who believe in theistic evolution. Dr. Bullen, I really enjoyed this conversation. Good. It's been really helpful to understand the philosophical uh, aspect of theistic evolution, which I hear you saying resoundingly, no, it, it's not philosophically sound. It's not philosophically viable. Listener, I hope he has raised some questions for you that you hadn't thought of and challenged you to think from of this from a new perspective. I've been your host today, Paul Rutherford. This has been a Head and Heart podcast. If you have further questions, again, we encourage you to visit our website, probe.org, where there's other resources and blog posts on this issue and lots of other issues. Uh, Dr. Bolin, thank you for joining me in studio. My pleasure. And uh, listener, we'll see you next time.